I'm Kane Jackson, and this is Chasing Financial Equality, a show where we ask what's getting in the way of the equal opportunities that so many people have fought for. We speak to leading thinkers and a few familiar names and address the obstacles of yesterday that are standing in the way of progressive social policy today, all in pursuit of just one big question. What's the point of fixing climate for the future if only a few of us can afford to live there? This episode of Chasing Financial Equality is proudly brought to you from our new home, Work Club. They're Australia's premier flexible workspace for individuals and startups through to large companies. It's work, but reimagined. Welcome to Chasing Financial Equality. Today I'm joined by Tracy Spicer, AM. She's an Australian newsreader, Walkley Award winning journalist, and social justice advocate. Tracy's latest book, Man Made How the Bias of the Past is Being Built into the Future was launched recently by the former Governor-General of Australia, Dave Quinton Bryce, and has achieved critical acclaim for its work in opening readers' eyes to the transformative technological shift in society caused by artificial intelligence. Tracy is a feminist, a leader, and a truth-teller intent on speaking that truth to power wherever she can. She is a hero to many people I know, including our next guest, <laughs> who many years ago attended a workshop run by Tracy that taught her how to speak out. What was it called? It was called Outspoken Women. There you go. <laughs> that person is the legendary Tirsten Hunter, who is fast becoming a voice of honesty and reason in the very industry responsible for the artificial intelligence that keeps Tracy awake at night, venture capital. Kirsten is something of a rare breed. The co-founder and CEO of a fintech that actually went on to reach profitability, and a woman who has reached the highest levels of a male-dominated industry that is financial services. As the co-founder and CEO of Future Super, Kirsten oversaw a seven-fold increase in customer numbers and as a result was awarded Superannuation Executive of the Year in 2019. But not content with breaking convention once, Kirsten is back at it in another male-dominated space, VC. As the Managing Director of Techstars in Australia, the world's largest seed stage investor, Kirsten is earnestly advocating for greater equality in startup investing and is quickly earning herself a reputation for calling out the poor performance and hypocrisy of those she, said she shares the industry with. An outcome I have no doubt Tracy is thrilled to contribute to. <laughs> Kirsten is courageously driving change from inside an industry that's long resisted external pressures, and she's doing it with unrivaled passion, eloquence, and jarring effectiveness. Welcome to you both. Wow, that is a <laughs> phenomenal introduction, and I'm in awe of the work of both of you. So thank you for having me on. Thank you so Thank much. You. Uh, for those who don't know, uh, the three of us have been sort of trading warm blows on, on LinkedIn and, and platforms for quite some time and have found that we share quite a few people in common. So we thought we'd get everyone together and talk about today's theme, which is solving problems caused by bias and gender inequality. Okay, so I want to start with your book, Tracy. Um, it was, it, it's, it's gone off. Did you, <laughs> did you expect it to be so well received? Not at all. I started thinking about this seven years ago and everyone who I told about it, friends and colleagues said, A, you're mad writing a book about technology, it changes so quickly, whereas the book is more around the social side of artificial intelligence. B, no one's interested in AI, no one understands it, no one, no one gets it. So when my son turned to me one morning and said, Mum, I want a robot slave, <laughs> This is where I got the idea from originally. He'd been watching South Park and Cartman, a very naughty boy, had been ordering around his Amazon Alexa like he was some kind of colonial master. And I couldn't get this idea out of my head. 
that the concept of women and girls being servile from the 1950s was being built into the technologies of the future. So I ignored all the naysayers and forged forward. And I cannot tell you how thrilled I was uh, in a kind of dystopian, scary way when ChatGPT exploded late last year because mm -hmm. I thought, wow, people are talking about this. Now, that, that makes sense. You just described this, this, um, this era of women. It's very much reflected in the, the artwork on the front of your book. Now, I read on the back here that the cover was generated using Midjourney, which was artificial intelligence. Do you remember the prompts? I actually do. Men Coach, the cover designer, suggested we use AI to create the cover to start a conversation about what was happening in his industry and the job losses and the erosion of copyright and creative rights and all of that kind of stuff. So I wanted a strong robot woman looking <laughs> to the future with concern but hope. The very first image that came up and the only prompts we put in were pretty much the, the title of the book and robot woman looking to the future. Mm -hmm. And it came up with this highly sexualized gold robot woman with a tiny waist and massive breasts. <laughs> and that made me realize even more deeply. The bias, <laughs> yeah, we have a problem. Houston, we have a problem. And interestingly, the word that we had to put into the prompts to get that image, because every time I put in strong woman, it came up with a woman with massive biceps. Mm -hmm. So it only read strong as physically strong. I had to put a word in that I hate, which is sassy. And I hate it because it's such a gendered word. No one ever says to a boy, oh, you're so sassy. Mm. But that was what was required to come up with the image of that strong woman. She doesn't really look sassy to me, though. No, she doesn't, <laughs> but she looks strong. And she that does. was the only way we could get that. Mm -hmm. It's been said, um, you said that not, you know, no one understands AI. I think um, it's been said that the, the purpose of your book is to shine a light on dark places to sort villains from victims and to give you the knowledge, tools and power to push back and say enough. What are the main problems that exist in AI today? And I guess more broadly, are the, the, the overarching theme of your book? Oh my gosh, how long have you got? <laughs> <laughs> the main problem is that a small group of white guys, predominantly in Silicon Valley, is creating the future for all of us. And it's a future that works really well for them but not for everybody else, particularly if you're in a marginalised community or you're a woman. Uh, I know that people listening to this and watching this have got an understanding of these technologies, but I guess what shocked me as a, a layperson and a journalist coming at it from the outside was the levels at which the bias was embedded, first with the historical data, secondly with the algorithm, which uh, two people I interviewed for the book said an algorithm is an opinion expressed in code about the way the world should work. It is never neutral. And that was another light bulb moment. And then machine learning deepening that kind of bigotry and sexism. And that classic example of Tay, the Microsoft disaster back in 2016, where within 24 hours she became an anti-feminist neo-Nazi. Mm. So my concern is multifaceted that this small group of people is actually refusing to do anything about ethics or bias or discrimination because they're too busy racing each other to the first billion. I read a quote in your book that we risk losing the gains made by the civil rights movement and women's movement under the false assumption of machine neutrality. So speaking about that bias, I think it's probably important to step back and say, well, how much does gender bias 
affect us as a society now? You know, we say to understand the future, we must interrogate the past. Well, let's have a look first, I guess, at where we are now or where we've been very recently. And I'd probably go to you, Kirsten, to talk about your experience with um, gender bias, uh, discrimination, sexism, misogyny, all of those things um, in your new or, I guess, most recent entry mm-hmm. industry being venture capital. Mm-hmm. How much of, obviously, venture capital is a massive um, contributor to uh, the development of AI is that's where the funding comes from. Um, and we're hearing about uh, gender bias in artificial intelligence. So how much of that exists in VC? Yeah, I mean, there's certainly a lot of gender bias in VC, and we see that across all levels. It's at the decision maker within the VC funds. Uh, I don't have the number, but the vast, vast majority of decision makers who are actually choosing where to invest LPs' money are men. Um, The LPs who are contributing that money are largely older men and super funds. Um, And then in the outcome of those investment decisions as well, we see an absolutely... Uh, disproportional amount of money flowing to all-male founded teams. Um, Mixed-gender teams do slightly better than women-only teams, but only slightly better. And all up, um, it's something around 90% of investment dollars in 2022 went towards all-male teams. Like, it's such a large number that you think, how can this possibly be be right? But it is, and that's consistent globally. It's not just Australia. Cut through ventures, put the figures all women, uh, see there one or all women founding teams um, get just 5% of VC funding, 23% goes to mixed gender teams, and 70%, 72% generally goes to all male founding teams. Mm-hmm. So we're talking like 95% going to either all male or male focused teams rather than the other way around. Mm-hmm. Um, what problems do you think that creates if we're funding more men than women? I mean, it, it, so I'm sort of stumped on how to even start answering that question. I think there are so many problems, but, um, you know, we see businesses being set up where they're building a product for one type of person. You know, a, a lot of founders fall into the trap, especially early on, of building for themselves. And if you have an all-male founder team, then you're building for, you know, for men, unless you consciously and deliberately change your, um, your way of testing and change your inputs on the data. Um, that's at the very most basic level, but there's really big opportunities for harm that come from this as well. And um, one of the things that we've been talking a lot about in the industry lately, and AI plays into this as well, is if you're, you know, a very privileged you know, say you're a young white man who's a software engineer by background, that means you've been to university, that means you have enough money to be able to go to university, it means you have enough money to be able to work without a salary to found your startup. There's layers on layers on layers of privilege built into being in the position of being a male software founder. Um, And you probably haven't had a lot of experience with oppression or with feeling unsafe in spaces, whether physical or virtual. And so safety is not going to be something that you build in as a core tenant in the way you're structuring your product. Um, We see this in, uh, you know, a really easy to understand example is in the community standards that are applied on, you know, social media, where 
for example, photos of women breastfeeding are taken off because they are seen to be breaching community standards, whereas um, rape threats and, you know, really aggressive uh, misogynist uh, rants against women don't offend against the community standards. So, you know, having been a parent myself, there's actually a really big need to have a community around breastfeeding and to be able to share photos. And, you know, it's, it's a very common thing among women of a childbearing age to want to be talking about breastfeeding. But that sort of, that community impact is not part of the story and it yeah. isn't factored into the, the community reporting standards. Talking about risk and how the creators of anything consider risk, it's based on their lived experiences and their perspective. Um, when we talk about the development of technology, especially artificial intelligence, which is developing so quickly and is so pervasive and has a tendency to make sweeping statements and, and that exclude quite a lot of people's perspectives. I want to come back to uh, an example that you shared in your book. Um, you say um, in relation to legislation that keeps up with or, or tries to keep up with developments, uh, you share this, this anecdote and I'll, I'll quote you. It's mid-2010 and I try to use legislation aimed at protecting people online to stop trolls making rape and death threats. The burden of proof is extremely high. In my case, the police knock on, knock on the perpetrator's door based on his IP address, only to be told one of my flatmates was probably using the computer that day. He might as well have said that the dog ate my misogynistic manifesto. Honestly, I'm really a top bloke. The following day, this charming chap creates a new, a new anonymous handle to continue the harassment. Neither Facebook nor Twitter is willing to help. Headquartered in the US, they defend the abusive comments under the banner of free speech. Exhausted, broken and beaten, eventually give up the fire. Do you think that's what's going to happen if we don't change this now? Are we going to build in um, these problems that affect people um, that didn't create the codes and the rest of us just give up? And what does that do to us? 100%. Look at what happened with social media. And the legislators now all over the world are saying we can't make the same mistake that we made back then with artificial intelligence because they trusted the tech companies to self-regulate and look at how social media has changed our world in good ways and bad ways, but they've been playing catch up with regulation and that doesn't work. You can't bolt it on at the end. The same thing's happening with artificial intelligence. You might have read recently that a lot of the tech giants have had even more of a say in those draft EU AI laws and they've been watered down. So I just don't see any strong legislation coming out anytime soon, and that's frightening. Mm, and it's across the board as well. It's not just technology. I think um, there was a recent thing I was reading about um, the US government's uh, response after the Purdue Pharma opioid epidemic was to come out and say, we will never let this happen again. We're going to be on the front foot. We're going to make sure that we're ahead of new health trends and we're going to legislate ahead. And yet, um, you know, vaping came about and all of a sudden, you know, we had another kind of health adjacent thing that everyone just stood back and waited to see what would happen. And we had vaping companies that were deliberately doing testing around the appeal of certain messages to an adolescent audience. We had um, a lack of regulation around how these things were sold and how they were um, distributed. 
And as a result, you have this huge amount of the population, you know, teens and young adults who are now addicted to vaping and mm. it's become the new cigarette. You know, government is not equipped to legislate ahead of these trends. Um, and as a result, we're, we're failing to protect the most vulnerable people in society when these things are happening. Exactly. A classic example in the AI space of that, I heard from another parent in the local area just this morning that a 14-year-old boy at school was creating deep fakes of the girls mm -hmm. and getting away with it and the school didn't really take any action. And I know Australia is, you know, further ahead than a lot of other countries with legislation around deep fake technology, mm. but there's been too much focus on the problems for celebrities and politicians. But 99% of deep fakes are used to create pornographic images and videos predominantly of women and girls. So we don't have, uh, it sounds like government definitely, I mean, we, everyone knows that government is slow to respond mm -hmm. to technological advances. It sounds as though we've, we're almost at a, a new level where we don't have the competency within those uh, in the government departments writing this legislation or even considering it to actually ask the right questions. Um, Fei-Fei Lee at the Stanford Institute for Human-Centered Artificial Intelligence said, as the opening, opening chapter six in Tracy's book, uh, the quote was, if we don't get women and pe people of color at the table, real technologists doing the real work, we will bias systems. Trying to reverse that a decade, decade or two from now will be so much more difficult, if not close to impossible. And I think that's really important to understand the, the time sensitivity to this issue. Development of artificial intelligence is moving so quickly. And one of the other things I want to talk about, and I think one thing you do really well, um, I, I'm uh, very much in touch with the queer community, so I'm pretty, pretty much um, pretty around gender diverse people. And in, in your book, you open with, um, I, when I say women, I, I mean anyone that identifies as a woman. I really, a woman, I really like that. I think it's important to come back to not just this discussion around gender inequality. But the lived experiences of people that are not cisgendered, um, heterosexual white men. And that is predominantly, and don't get me wrong, there's a couple of pretty powerful gays in the world, yeah, yeah, gays. Um, <laughs> but some of them are quite evil. And uh, you know, you look at some of the things that Peter Thiel, Peter Thiel has done over the years, and he's been instrumental in investing in a lot of this technology. Um, and he still has that, what would be considered this sort of far right, white male perspective of the world. And it's, not necessarily one that many other people experience. Talking about people of colour, um, there was an example not that long ago where uh, in the early days of artificial intelligence, a team of white um, developers designed an automatic um, hand, hand cream dispenser for um, mental blank. Marriott Hotels. Mm. Was that it? Yeah, yeah, soap dispensers. And it didn't recognise black hands because no one That's right. Sued. Right code for a different skin. Precisely, because a small group of young white guys in Silicon Valley only tested it on themselves mm. and their friends. And that's, to your point earlier, Kirsten, about there's no inclusive design. They just think this works for me, it'll work for everybody in the world. Mm. And it took a Nigerian tech worker to bell the cat on that one. But the most frightening thing is that same AI light sensor technology is used in self-driving cars, which comes up, which come up to pedestrian crossings and have trouble recognising people of colour. It's mm. shocking. And, and on top of that, we have the Pentagon saying they would like to develop or introduce artificial intelligence into autonomous killing machines in the military. Yeah. And so these are, I guess, implications of what happens when you don't have the, a diverse set of people 
It feels as though AI has raised problems that have been lingering for quite some time. In an article that you were quoted in in the Australian Financial Review recently, an ex-Microsoft employee said, it's been like this since the 90s. Young men get given boatloads of venture capital and are suddenly in power. They think they know everything and women become the butts of their jokes. It's a dreadful environment to work in and if you speak up, you're emotional or a bad sport. And in that article, you said that you found women founders um, are, are, oh, you found that women founders are grateful for feedback, but a lot of men freak out and they hate that they're being rejected by a woman. Is that really is that true? Like, is that that? I, I can't imagine that. Typical. <laughs> so. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I mean, there's definitely a spectrum here and um, only a very, very small number of male founders freak out, but the sort of less extreme ends of the spectrum is, you know, what I see a lot is a resistance to the feedback that I've provided or trying to argue with me around whether or not the feedback is correct. Um, Whereas it's very, very noticeable to me that women founders um, are much more accepting of what I say to them and even grateful for the feedback and oftentimes will come back to me months later and tell me about how they've put that feedback into practice. So it's a really different dynamic between those two founder groups. But what's been really interesting over the last couple of months is uh, it sort of almost feels like investment is having its own Me Too type movement where we, we've had just this string of events that have really shown how much of a kind of tinderbox of frustration is just sitting out there in the ecosystem. So Um, I mean, it feels like old news now, but remember the Startup Muster report when that came out, it had a list of the most recommended mentors, eight names, all men. Um, The producers of that report were very quick to apologise and produce a a two-sided list with men and women, but the amount of uh, frustration evident in the response to that, I think, was uh, was surprising even to people who, um, who should have known better. Uh, Then we had off the back of that this incident with the founder and the really vile misogynistic messages that he was sending to people on LinkedIn. Um, This founder is actually really well known. He's been sending messages to me and about me for a number of months as well as a number of other female investors. Um, But on this occasion, he uh, made some posts that were so horrific to not be able to be ignored And he made them on a discussion thread with people who had the ability to escalate that conversation to the national um, newspapers. And so the Australian Financial Review ran a profile on him. He ended up stepping down from his role. But I think what was most interesting about that particular founder was um, he was just the one who didn't have a filter and said what a lot of other people think. You know, he, he said these horrific, awful things But a lot of other people hold those views. They just don't say them. They carry them out in other ways by through discrimination, through their decision making. Um, And I think that's what that uh, article that was in the Financial Review really showed was just that um, we think of sexism and misogyny as vile uh, posts like the one that this founder made. But actually, it's insidious and we deal with it every day. Uh, Jesse Wu, another leader in the VC space, said in that article, the real abusers in a given ecosystem are harder to hold to account. The article goes on to speak about this covert sexism and discrimination in Australia's technology sector, remaining, um, you know, a more pervasive problem. As a man who doesn't necessarily buy into anything remotely misogynistic or sexist, um, I wanted to look at why 
-hmm. Why is this male problem, this male perspective, such an issue? Why do some men want to victimise or at least not consider the perspective of women and girls? And I stumbled across some, some data that I found really, really jarring. Um, you know, you spoke about how sometimes when you give feedback to women, they take it really well, they take it on board, but when you give feedback to men, sometimes they freak out. Um, I found some research around self-awareness that I find quite interesting. I have a psych background, and that's something I get really passionate about. 95% of people believe they are self-aware, but only 10 to 15% of people possess evidence of such traits. Was uh, a, a fact reported in the Harvard, Harvard Business Review. But let's go one step deeper and have a look at men and women. Women are actually 86% more likely than men to be self-aware. So if you have a look at that, 18.4% of women demonstrate the competency consistently compared to just 9.9% of men. That's a really, really shocking bit of information that no one wants to talk about. And I think that might be because men don't, well, <laughs> don't want to be self-aware or can't be self-aware, but would require accepting responsibility for not necessarily shortcomings so much as differences where you have to apply an equitable approach to give um, more consideration for another perspective. So I think people want to talk a lot about this problem, you know, it's been, it's been discussed a lot in the industry at the moment. What do we do action-wise? Like how do we change this? Is it just a conversation? Is it just about changing the zeitgeist around what's acceptable in, in, in a public space or what do we have to do? What are the action points? Mm, I feel like this is a Tracy question. <laughs> oh, before you answer, because I'm sure you'll have tremendous insights here, uh, thank you for allowing me to jump in because this is a particular area of interest of mine, having a boy and a girl, to mm. use traditionally gendered terminology. From when they were younger, they were pretty much the same when they were very, very little. But then, of course, they absorb the images they see around them in the mass media, the expectations in society and community. <laughs> and one of those is the kind of media you consume. And we know for a long time women have read more novels and watched more films where the central premise is around relationships between people whereas boys get caught into those shoot 'em up kind of films and are less likely to read novels. They're more likely to read non-fiction. So that builds more empathy in girls and women. And to say that women and girls are born with more empathy is ridiculous. It's neurosexism. It's what's around them that creates them like that. So that plays into everything that you're talking about, about the, well, boys grow up with more privilege, of course. They're told from a young age by their parents or their uncles or friends of the family, you know, you're going to be a tough boy, a leader, you're going to be success. Girls are told, oh, you're kind, you're nice, isn't that wonderful? Which reinforces those kind of stereotypes. So certainly their privilege plays a part in people who are predators in the workplace, but it's more structural and it comes from a much younger age than that. It's a power imbalance that exists between boys and girls and then men and women. These classic gendered differences are being deepened by artificial intelligence. You just have to look at the algorithm on Netflix, mm. which uh, recommends to boys they watch more shoot 'em up movies and recommends to girls they watch more rom-coms. And that's what frightens me about the deepening of this bias. But also 
the lack of women and people from marginalised communities in the tech sector more broadly because these problems will only worsen. Yeah, I think that's exactly right. And that social context of what how we treat children continues through to how we treat young adults and how we treat them once they enter the workplace as well. I mean, we hear a lot about, a lot more criticism now, I suppose, about the phrase boys will be boys. But the fact is, um, we do tend to excuse young men for their behaviours and we tend to hold young women accountable. Um, in the workplace, that continues. And, you know, in the extreme cases of harassment, you often find situations where um, a woman will report experience of harassment with a male colleague or a male supervisor and uh, sometimes it's not handled at all, sometimes it goes through a process, but in the large number of cases, it's the woman who ends up leaving the role and the man often gets to stay. Um, sometimes the man often gets promoted into a new area to take him away from the problems that he's created in his old area. So we really do hold women and men to a different standard in the workplace. I think there's an additional factor here as well, which is in traditionally male-dominated industries, um, of which tech is definitely one, as a younger woman coming into that industry, you know you don't belong. You know you don't fit the majority. And so a lot of your mindset when you're learning how to work in your role is learning how to fit in with the culture that you're a part of. And I think that really teaches young women a lot of uh, reading people, reading rooms, reading dynamics, <laughs> self-awareness to come back to the yeah. point. Exactly. So I think it's, it's not that young men um, are naturally less self-aware. I mean, I don't think any of us are saying that. But I think our social conditioning, our workplaces, they force young women to be self-aware um, and they allow young men not to be. Indeed. And speaking of those structural issues, one thing I've noticed in the tech sector and a lot of industries in the corporate space is that you have a lot of men in the money-making roles and a lot of women or other kind of groups who are in the diversity and inclusion area. So again, it's like women are fixing up the mess. They're there to be paid less and to fix up the problems. Mm. And then in, in tech as well, you know, we spoke earlier about the disparity in funding, who gets the funding, um, with the large majority of funding going to founders that are all male or are, you know, pre predominantly male. What that means in organisations is that most of the leadership positions in startups and emerging technology businesses are held by men. And the women in those organisations tend to be in more junior roles where they are, you know, in that position of being the minority. They probably doubt their own opinion before they express it in a room. And so it takes a real strength in leadership and strength in culture to take a woman or any other marginalised person in this context, it's not gender specific, um, but if someone is raising um, a counterpoint or something, uh, you know, there's a lot of discussion in tech around the, the pace of development and test and learn. If a woman or a marginalised person is raising an unpopular view that might cause the product development to slow down to, say, check on the safety mechanisms or test how this might work if you're, uh, you know, running your um, soap dispenser on different skin tone hands, that person is likely to be overruled in that conversation. They're likely to be dismissed as um, not being able to keep up with the pace of technology and that viewpoint is lost. See open AI. <laughs> yeah, precisely. I'm glad you mentioned that I was going to bring it back to you. Nice to meet me. So we saw that with open AI. Um, you know, a lot of these things, uh, these problems, are 
often relegated to conversations like this that people can put on a shelf and put away and not pay attention to. But recently it was brought to light as a result of Sam Altman and OpenAI. What did you think, uh, I guess, that experience, uh, did it reflect the problems that you've been writing about? And, and what do you think, what lessons can we learn from that? Oh, yes, it mirrored what's happening every day in countless organisations. Uh, for a long time, I've thought that Sam Altman is wildly hypocritical, going around the world having meetings with prime ministers and presidents saying publicly he wants regulation and legislation and we need ethics and we need to rein in all of us tech giants or it could be the end of humanity, while behind the scenes he's lobbying for the EU AI Act to be watered mm -hmm. down. It is wildly hypocritical, a huge success in marketing, I'm sure, but I'm glad that that open AI thing exploded on the world stage because we saw that they got rid of the two female members of the board who were more interested in the not-for-profit aspect and ethics and replaced them with two guys who just want to make more money. And this is something that puts all of us at risk. Mm, absolutely. I mean, there were some really concerning things in our own local ecosystem, statements from different people about that affair as well. So before any of the reasons why Altman had been removed from his post originally became known, we had a number of very prominent venture capitalists in Australia um, screaming about how a founder who is a successful founder who's value creating in his business should never be removed. Or I think the quote was, it should be a very, very high bar. Um, before any of the reasons were known, there were questions raised about the board's competence before there was any willingness to consider that Sam Altman might have done something worthy of dismissal. Now, again, I think that's just such a clear example where these white, male, privileged uh, venture capitalists could not even understand, like didn't have the sort of creative vision to think of a single reason why a CEO of a successful business might lose their job. I mean, if he had been involved in some massive fraud, if he had um, harassed a member of his team, if he had covered up harassment, if he had deployed AI in the way that threatened humanity. Like all of these are very good reasons why a CEO should lose their role. Um, and the speed at which the investment community took Altman's side and put him back in his job was terrifying. And in stark contrast to perhaps an Australian example with what occurred with Optus recently, mm. which was led obviously by a, 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 a woman CEO who was ousted um, very quickly, almost too quickly. Would you agree? Yeah, I mean, it certainly was a, a, an example of how women are held accountable for things outside the spectre of responsibility. I mean... There's been a lot of discussion about this, but um, with the Optus example, you could imagine if it was a male CEO, I mean, um, Kelly can go both ways as far as gender goes as a name, but if Kelly had been a man, um, he would have probably been able to claim the circumstantial reasons for Optus going down. He would have been able to speak to um, the, the Cisco systems and the, the service upgrade uh, without it being seen as a personal failure for not predicting that likelihood. So it is a very different level of uh, accountability that we hold leaders to um, and expectation of what a leader should be responsible for. Mm. But you're right, that starkness of those two examples at the same, yeah, within the same week. It was, it was quite jarring, I found. Mm. Um, I found it wildly hypocritical and sad, to be honest. So when, when she announced her resignation effective immediately, I thought, 
you know, you don't know why, you know, what, what, what drove her personal decisions might have been just, this is too much. And the pressure on her would have been just diabolical. Mm. And I think, you know, it was, people were so quick, you know, you spoke about the, uh, the Australian tech response or the, the, the VC's response. It was so quick, you know, where we live in a social media time where people are quick to judge and, you know, they do so on a five-second soundbite. Um, but the, the tech bros, and let's be honest, the men of the world who um, idolise this individual, Sam Altman, because he is the embodiment of all of the things that those types of people pursue in life, this, this ultra wealth, this ultra notoriety, all of these things that we celebrate as the measures of success, they were so quick to jump behind his plight, whatever that might be, because they don't know, and say, you've done the wrong thing, you need to bring Sam back. And that's probably more reflective of the fact that they have pinned parts of their identity on, on I guess, aspiring to become what he is perceivably. Um, and and there's, no, there's no debate around, well, hang on a minute, what actually happened? And there was very little debate around, but what happened? So many people sent me messages saying, what do you think happened? And I mean, it's a bit like a marriage. We'll never, we'll never see inside, inside the closed doors. But no one was, you know, the, the Twitter army were not having that debate because they didn't care. And, you know, we didn't see that with the Optus CEO. There was no, you know, I think so much of that is gender-based. Mm, there's another, oh, sorry, Tracy, yes, there's another it. element just within the sort of response here, which is that, um, you know, the VC funds are all incentivized to try and attract the best founders. And so part of their motivation in speaking so strongly in favour of Altman is to say to the rest of the founders out there, we've got your back. You know, we're going to be your number one ally when things get tough. Um, some of them even have words to the effect of, you know, in cases of grey area, we will side with the founders as part of their value statements. And again, that subtle messaging to the women and marginalised people who are working within these companies led by these leaders is if you speak up against your founder, we're going to side with the founder. Yes. You know, and what is more grey as far as, you know, a potential grey area that we might side with the founder on than allegations of harassment, you know. So to me, it was just this really awful um, public statement of the cult of the founder and the fact that we will side with these founders who are by and large powerful men over anyone else in the organisation, over anyone else in the board, over community concerns about what's happening and that their power is kind of untouchable. It's a perfect storm, the perfect shitstorm, isn't mm, it? It is. The other thing that concerned me about this is that the staff raced to Sam Altman's defence. And I thought, okay, maybe he's not a bad guy after all, the <laughs> layperson watching this. And then I realised 75% of the staff are male. And that really speaks to the problem of male-dominated industries because you're right, they will often just support the perpetrator because mm. of unconscious bias, because they want to be this kind of person who makes the first billion, doesn't care about anything else. Because that's pretty much who Sam Altman is. I mean, he raced to put out ChatGPT, starting mm -hmm. that arms race around large language models and chatbots, and it simply wasn't ready. Mm -hmm. The kind of bias, the first time I used ChatGPT and you said, tell me a story about an engineer, 100% of cases it would be a man, childcare worker, 100% of cases it will be a woman. It's, I know ChatGPT4 is a bit better, but it still leans towards heteronormative, towards male, towards urban over-regional, towards people without disabilities and towards younger people over older people. Mm. So what kind of future are we creating when we venerate and celebrate someone like that?
Mm. I think as well, your point earlier about machine neutrality really plays in here as well, because this, this tool is a public tool and it's changing the conversation. It's changing how people research, how they work, how they prepare their resumes for job Ooh. applications. And the popular, like the, the lay person coming to chat GPT probably has some kind of sci-fi, you know, understanding of what this tool is. And they think that this is not just an algorithm which is producing an opinion based on the data that it has available to it. They think that this is an all-knowing computer that's telling them the right answer. And that's really worrying as well because people will be less likely to question something coming out of ChatGPT than they will if it's coming from, you know, a human person giving them an answer on a controversial topic. Mm. Giannis Rose, a transgender writer, researcher and educator, said that algorithms are assertions about how the world should work. And I think that covers this problem we're having with all of the assertions that are being written into these algorithms by a very limited perspective. Mm -hmm. One of the things I want to speak about before we wrap up is this notion that I keep coming back to. It's, it's a central theme of all of the conversations I'm having for this podcast and in other conversations. And it centers around, there's quite a lot of people out there with specialty focus. Uh, you have a specialty focus at the moment on gender bias and the problems within AI. You have a specialty focus on gender bias within the funding landscape um, and the experience of um, women in leadership roles and any roles that are different to how they would um, experience them if they were male. Mm -hmm. Lots of other people have their specialty focuses. And, you know, I, I tend to speak to people who get pretty upset by injustice and, you know, inequalities, and there's a, there's a theme there. But one of the things that people keep coming back to are um, we're all focused on a specific problem. And, you know, Buckminster Fuller, who's a hero of mine, and some of Tracy is quoted in, in her book as well, um, is, is a big uh, systems theorist. And his, he purports that one of the biggest problems with society these days in a modern age is that we've all become specialists. You go off and become a lawyer, you go off and become a journalist, you go off and become a data scientist, you go off and become a doctor. You're a specialist. And we um, obfuscate responsibility from general problems that we don't understand. We go, that's not my problem. And you know, I'm going to throw Tracy under the bus and give an example here. I asked Tracy for an endorsement for Maslow early on in the piece. And you know, Tracy didn't know me from Adam or Faraso, whatever you want to say. And Tracy said, no, I, I won't give you an endorsement. And to her credit, um, you know, she couldn't stand behind a comment um, or an endorsement because she felt that she didn't understand um, the finance industry enough to do so. And that speaks to Tracy's credibility on anything else. But it does also speak to this notion that we step back from problems that we don't feel like we know enough on. And that leaves us in a situation where we relegate these responsibilities for broader problems to um, elected representatives, politicians, who are elected on a, usually a four-year four term. And we're not seeing solutions, and yet we do. We do tend to stand back, to stand back and say, I don't know enough about that, and I do that. We all do it, because if we didn't study it, we don't know enough to comment, we don't know enough to, um, I guess, have an opinion or an informed opinion. And in all these conversations I'm having, there's similarities. Gender's a massive one. This, this male-dominated world that we all live in, and we are talking in this chat about this male problem. And this male problem, you know, you say, you say early, you said in your book, Tracy, to understand the future, we must interrogate the past. And as you know, the work we do at Maslow is all about changing power structures that have been around for a very long time. 
And if we look at the financial system and what it represents, it is the same thing that we are seeing built into artificial intelligence, this male-centric view of the world, the patriarchy. And you know, more, more prevalent in uh, the finance industry is this notion that with capital comes power, with more money comes votes. And if we look at the fact that we're all specialists and we defer to our politicians to solve general problems, and yet we live in a time where capitalism is influencing democracy because the more money you have, the more you can influence things. And so we're all sitting in rooms all around the world trying to solve our specialist problems. And not many people, according to Buckminster Fuller, are standing um, well enough back and saying, well, hang on a minute, let's go back and have a look at a couple of things. What are the problems? And let's try and solve those problems. Having politely declined to share an endorsement from Maslow because of such, um, I guess, an experience. What would your advice be for anyone that doesn't want to uh, maybe get involved in a problem they don't feel they know enough about? Mm. There's a lot in that because we're living in the middle of the fourth industrial revolution. And like I write about in my book, if you look at every revolution, there's a shake-up and then things go back to the structure that was <laughs> there beforehand or they even become worse in some ways. We do need to step back and realise that we're living at a time of late-stage capitalism. With the election happening in America next year, it is almost impossible. It's not going to happen, this idea that Biden's going to put strong regulation and legislation in place. America is so beholden to the free market. And these guys creating this technology are wildly libertarian. And in fact, ChatGPT has got a libertarian bent, which is interesting. So that's just um, exponentially increasing all of this kind of stuff. We need to rethink the way the world has been created historically by men for men. Also in my book, I mentioned just briefly about when I did a company director's course five years ago, and it really struck me because I've sat on some boards and we've had conversations around sexual harassment and assault in the workplace. And the conversations eventually came around to the fact that the primary objective of a director is for the health, well-being and longevity of the company because the company is treated like a person under corporate law. And while that exists, there is no way people are going to be treated well in the workplace. Mm -hmm. There is no way they're going to address those fundamental problems because if there is a toxic workplace, that could lead to the end of the company and they are legally beholden to the company first. But to your question about what can we all do, we live in the age of the individual. We forget the great 1960s and 70s trend of collective action. We can all change Siri to a male voice in the home or if you work in the business and finance sector, make your chatbots female voiced instead of male voiced because that's something that still exists, this idea that only men can have authoritative voices. We forget that we live in a democracy and we have power as members of civil society to contact our local members and to say, are you becoming educated about artificial intelligence and will you be putting in place some regulation? In Australia, we have some great opportunities here. We had a Human Rights Commissioner, Ed Santo, who came up with a three-year AI safety report recommending that Australia has the world's first AI safety commissioner. So there are solutions here, regulatory sandboxes. But fundamentally, we can do everything we can to talk about this issue with our friends, our kids, our families and our colleagues. Even if you feel like you don't know much about it, play a part. We can change things. Yeah, I could not agree more. 
Um, I think it's the the positive, you know, the the silver lining behind the fact that government is behind on a lot of these regulatory areas is that government responds to the will of the people mm. and the people is us. So for us to get out there and exert our opinions and show government that these kind of things matter, that's what's going to drive action. You made some really powerful points about the culture in the sector. No, thank you. You know, um, when I started in seeing a lot of IT events, probably <laughs> in about, I don't know, the late 1990s or maybe the early 2000s, I thought, oh, my God, this is like the media back in the 1980s. Mm -hmm. So I'm, I'm horrified to hear it's still as bad. Yeah, it's as bad, definitely. <sighs> yeah, I mean, it's sort of, there's a lot of, I think we are talking a lot with the VCs at the moment around um, the fact that the ecosystem has grown and the protections that were in place early on haven't stayed. Oh. So there was a model code of conduct that was drafted by all of the venture capital firms in 2018. Everyone signed up to it. It has a very long list of behaviours that are prohibited um, for, you know, different things. Like it's actually a great document, but no one knows it exists now and no one follows it. And, yeah. you know, five years ago, Blackbird had probably 10, 15 investments and their senior partners sat on all the boards and they played a really strong mentoring role with all of the founders. But now they have probably 60 investments and they can't do that. You know, they're spread too thin. So it's really interesting just the how it's worsened, I think. Yeah, you know, awesome. corporate Australia has gotten better, but I think the tech yeah. sector overall has gotten worse. And intersecting with venture capital, which, mm -hmm. as you mm -hmm. eloquently said, is still so dominated. Yeah, very. And that's it for today's episode. As always, thanks so much for listening. If you enjoy the show, please remember that sharing it on social media with your thoughts is a really valuable way to support us. If you haven't already, please rate and review the show on your chosen podcast platform. These are the things that help us bring you the world's most impressive thinkers, and it helps us on our journey toward erasing financial inequality, one of humanity's greatest threats today.